0: Welcome to the Wildly Capable podcast by NovoEd, hosted by Todd Moran and Alex Gruen. On Wildly Capable, we explore unusual sources of deep capabilities and unexpected insights on human capital. On this episode... Todd and I interview Dan Cockrell, Disney keynote speaker, former vice president of Disney's Magic Kingdom, and author of How's the Culture in Your Kingdom? Lessons from a Disney Leadership Journey. We're starting at the beginning of the book and also of your career early on in How's the Culture in Your Kingdom. You have a great section on mental fitness in which you reflect on your time as an entry-level manager overseeing the parking lot at Disneyland Paris. So to kick things off, can you share a couple of stories with our listeners about lessons learned in Paris as a 24-year-old as a that you carried with you into your career later on in senior management and beyond?
1: So many lessons. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, the, I think the, the, big, the, the, the biggest thing I learned about that was uh, how to open your mind up and just be willing to learn. You know, it was so intimidating to move to another country. I traveled a lot, but I'd never lived in another country. And to go someplace where everything is different every single day, you're trying to figure out what people are saying on the telephone. You're trying to figure out what word they said. You're trying to figure out what the word is for bleach when you're at the supermarket. Just and and yeah, as I like to say, this is what us old people say back then, we didn't have a smartphone. <laughs> so you just, yeah, you nothing, You had nothing in your pocket to pull out and reference. It just, you just had to sort of figure it out. So I remember being in the plane flying to France and I told myself, okay, you can do this one of two ways. You can go there, be meek, intimidated and just be quiet and try to kind of blend in. And if people ask why you don't speak French, um, you know, you can say, well, because I've I've only been here a short time, or you can just start trying, start talking, just jump into it and be willing to sound ridiculous and be willing to put yourself out there. And you're going to make mistakes and you're going to have misunderstandings. And in a year from then, you are now going to actually be able to like, you know, be able to navigate in another country. And that's exactly what I did. And I think that's why they, they say kids learn so much faster because they don't, they're not afraid of making mistakes. They just make mistakes, break it try again. Adults, we like to be get it right. We don't like to be judged. So that was probably the biggest thing was the, the, the being humbled by being the foreigner, right? English is a, uh, French is a second language, you know, that was my deal. So um, always trying to figure that out. Um, the other thing was just, I, I think, just accepting other cultures. Um, there's this anyone who's lived in another country, you go on sort of roller coaster ride, the first month or two is like honeymoon phase. Wow, I can't believe I'm here. This is so cool. And then it kicks in. You're like, oh, I have to be here all the time. And you start comparing everything. And you compare everything that you know that should be the way, should things in your life should be with the country you're in. And after a while, you get really bitter and you get really frustrated. And that's when you have to make a decision. Either I'm going to start changing or I'm going to leave because this country's not going to change just because I don't like the way things are done all the time. And so I start, that's what I started to do. And just things as simple as how you push back how you ask questions um, in, in staff meetings, uh, how you speak up, uh, your, uh, your personal distance from people. It's different in countries. And in, in France, if you give too much, people too much room, they'll just step in front of you. If they're not being rude. You're just not protecting your, your, your space. And so after a while, you start changing. And that's when it really starts to get fun. But uh, those were a couple of the big things is just getting over that, uh, that fear of not being able to do it and fear of being judged. And uh, if you can get rid of that, well, you can learn a lot.
2: I'd be intrigued on the the first point about purposefully and intentionally putting yourself in these uncomfortable positions where you're sort of forced to reach and to stretch translate that a little bit for us, you know, moving back in, and in, in sort of, you know, in the, in the corporate world, should we be doing more of that as l HR talent professionals asking people to reach broaden, you know, be put in these uncomfortable safe, but uncomfortable positions? Or um, is that only for sort of a select few or only in certain areas that you think that that really works to sort of grow and, and develop folks um, kind of in the enterprise setting?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think this is a life philosophy, not just personal life, but I think in organizations, you should be constantly be looking for ways to put people in learning situations. Um, At Disney, we we were able to do that because it's so big and there's such a matrix structure there. You can move people with pretty little technical knowledge into new jobs because the systems are so strong and the the expertise around is so strong. I know that's a little bit of a stretch sometimes for smaller companies because they're like, you know, I, I can't take a risk and just throw someone in a new job. Because if they mess up, we lose our biggest client and that our biggest client is 50% of our revenue. So, you know, you have to be smart about how you make these, take these risks, but there are so many other things you can do. You don't have to put someone in a different job just to have them learn. You can challenge them to go um, learn a new skill and agree at the beginning of the year. Hey, you know, what, what do you want to, what do you, what would you like to learn? Let's talk about that. And then as, instead of making it like a stretch goal, this is a, you know, we're encouraging you to develop yourself. This should be like, it's mandatory. Now that you've determined what you're going to develop, we're at the end of the year, we're going to see where you got. It's going to be part of your, your performance rating. It's going to be part of your compensation, your bonus. And I think a lot of companies like to think development should is optional, but I don't think it should be. I think if you're going to create a culture in a company where you're always aspiring to do better, everyone you hire should come in knowing that that's going to be part of the, part of the job.
2: Yeah, that's brilliant. It also makes me think a little bit about we a past guest, Dan, uh, just um, just last week, um, um, Adam Neiman, who spoke about this construct of uh, DPS, Directive Performance Support. So don't make the training separate from, make it part and parcel of the nature of their work. And if you do that, that is going to force them whatever role, whatever tier they are in the organization to, to have to create that application and, and relevance to, to what they're doing. And they're doing that in a very challenging, complicated manner. Don't make it sort of separate off to the side. We hope that you might develop in the following manner, so I, I'd, I'd love to hear you echo that as well, Dan, because I, th- I think I think that can work at scale too, or at least I should ask you: Do you think that that can work at scale, or is that only again where you can do that in a very targeted fashion?
1: No, it can become a part of the performance criteria that you evaluate as an organization, and if uh, if you make it and you hold people accountable to that. Um, you can get some great results. And the, the funny thing here is you're holding people accountable to make themselves more valuable. So this shouldn't be a, you know, this shouldn't be a stretch for people. Um, the cool thing about this is you're not, you're, you're, you're focusing on results, but you're focusing on results to, so they have better capabilities to get better results. In um, a lot of organizations, it's just about results. Look, I don't care how you get the job done. I don't care if you develop, you just got to get those numbers to be those numbers every month. And that's not a, uh, that's not a sustainable model. And you know, people burn out with that kind of model. They have to know that okay, am I am I getting better doing this? Is, am I am I going to get more um, resourceful? Am I going to get better competencies so I can either do this job a lot better and get better results, or be able to grow out of this job into something bigger and you know either move laterally or into a, a role with more responsibility and take on more because I've been pushed. And if you talk to leaders over the years. The ones that they complained about and who were tough and never let up on them, they're the ones they look back and they thank in hindsight that they pushed them so hard because it prepared them for, uh, for the real world. Just like, you know, parents do. Teenagers never thank you for all the stuff you do to them when they're teenagers, but they eventually a lot of them come back, you know, in their late 20s. Hey, thanks for, you know, at the time I didn't realize I thought I did, but thanks for pushing me. Thanks for creating that structure for me. Thanks for the discipline because that's why I'm successful now. So that's the thing. You never get thanked in the moment. It's always later.
0: And it echoes some of the advice that you give in the book too, which is, you know, be curious, learn, 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 learn. And remember, it's not only about who you know, but mainly about who knows you to get as much exposure as possible in pursuing those processes. You meet people, you network, you volunteer for new assignments, you cultivate those capabilities question is how do you do it in remote and hybrid work uh this is a new force to be reckoned with and you got to drive all these extraordinary programs and change and opportunity at disney but those are physical spaces so any thoughts or guidance around how to be able to you know as an emerging leader how do you do that in a hybrid or remote work environment
1: yeah and i've I've talked on a, a few podcasts about this i'll tell you I think there's absolutely no difference. And I would actually say it's actually easier in a remote environment. And I know people say, well, you're crazy because I don't run into my boss in the hallway working out of my house. But the reality is when we're at work, people are engaged in their work and they are just, you know, we kind of think, well, since we're all in the same space, that means that we're going to really make an impression on each other and we're going to make those connections. But if you go to organizations and have leaders that are very thoughtful about how they connect, um, it's, they, don't, they don't rely on chance opportunity to meet by the water cooler. They set up those quarterly meetings with their boss. They set up those, you know, uh, every month they decide, I'm going to meet someone new in the organization. I'm going to find out what they do in their job. And I'm going to introduce myself and make a new connection. And so um, if, if, if you want to do that, you literally can do that now one-on-one at Zoom, looking into their eyes and having that talk. Um, if you want to connect with your team, uh at the beginning of every week to make sure everyone's on the same page of what you're going to be working on the week you jump on the on every monday morning and from 8:30 to 8:45 you have a 15 minute what's everyone working on this week you have that conversation maybe you have a 15 minute uh midweek check in and a, at the end of the week you have a how did we do this week so it, for me it has nothing to do with uh just you know be, being physically there it's all about intent and just creating the right forums and d- being disciplined enough to check in on a fairly regular basis with everybody. But you have to think through it. You need to pull a calendar out. How often do I really want to talk to you one-on-one? Or do we need to talk one-on-one? How often do I need to talk to somebody who's, you know works on the other side of the company? Maybe it's once a year. But the fact is, this can all be planned. And you can plan this out how you want to have these engagements with everybody. And then make sure they know why you're doing it. And I think you can be extremely effective in this in this regard.
2: Yeah, that that the theme uh, I think I'm hearing loud and clear down at this intentionality, which is intriguing. You know, a lot of what we work with clients about in terms of you know purposeful design of, of learning and development opportunities, it's intentionality. It's not just throw a bunch of content assets at them or you know enroll them in a whole series of courses and hope that just translates into 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 performance readiness or progression. But it's being very intentional, very specific about the types of designs and experiences you're trying to put them through, uh, which which I think is what I'm hearing from you a little bit is you know, putting that front and center, whether it's in the leadership vein, or or otherwise, I, I don't know if, if that's kind of what you're driving at a little bit.
1: Absolutely, intentionality. This is everyone's career. I think hinges on on two things. A little bit back to your theme, your performance and the perception of your performance. So, you know, everyone out there, and there's lots of people in this world. I'm putting my head, my nose to the grindstone. I'm working hard. I'm doing a great job. I'm not taking that time to go try to do all the politics. And if they don't recognize my potential and my performance, well, then shame on them. Well, no, shame on you because you're going to be the one penalized if people don't know what you're doing for them. And it's like it's like marketing. If I have the best product in the world, if you don't know about it, you're not going to buy it. So not only does the, pro- the product have to be great you, but you have to be very smart uh, and, and strategic in how you market yourself. And this is where people go to the extreme. Well, I don't want to go out and try to toot my own horn doesn't feel comfortable I don't want to totally disengage. So how do I do that? Well, be relevant, be relevant to people. So I learned this early in my career is um, I started sending a one page update every Friday to my boss, whether they requested it or not. Here's what I'm working on or doing that I think you need to know about in my job. There are things are relevant. Here are the things I'm thinking about right now, about what the future looks like, maybe some future projects. What do you think? And by the way, here's four or five things that I did this week. You don't know about, but it was great. And, and, you know, kind of uh, permission to brag. And every, every mo- Friday, I'd send that note. And so if my, if my boss, if we only met once a month and those got canceled, they knew exactly what was going on with me. They, uh, if someone stopped the elevator, how's Dan doing? They could refer to that, that little memo they read a few days ago and bring up some of those points. So you got to be smart about uh, are you on your, your, everyone's radar um, out there. Don't assume they know because they're, they're 10 times busier than you are and they're not paying attention. They're not thinking about you. So you better be relevant to them. Um, so when the, it comes time to um, you know, look for promotions or look for additional responsibility, it's the known quantities that are, are going to be considered. If I, don't, if I think you're doing a good job, but I don't know that for sure, I'm going to go with something I do know. And that's, once again, that's that intentionality of communication.
2: Dan makes me think a lot about, we've done a fair amount of work in a past life with uh, John Stepper and and writes a lot about work out loud. Uh, He's a former Deutsche Bank exec. And I thought, you know, the two kind of brilliant tenets to that that speak and resonate, I think, with what you're describing of that work out loud, which is, you know, make your work visible, but also narrate it. Narrate it not in a braggadocious way, but but in a meaningful way, and I think that that's important. Which which maybe brings me to this other piece of you know kind of core tenets that things you should be doing, whether you're sort of leader down to your directs, if you're a people leader or or otherwise. And, and let me see if I can get this right. If I got a sort of direct quote from the book, but you have an entire section uh, in the book called you know, about giving effective feedback. And, and you write, I quote, "I always think about the consequences of not providing feedback. Over time, if we do not deal with the issues head on, we lose." Credibility and eventually our ability to lead. Our operation becomes less efficient or productive, and our organizational culture weakens. So, love to, love to have you talk maybe a little bit more about the importance of of that feedback as another kind of critical tenant of, of of driving things forward in this in this workplace environment. Because I think you hold that in fairly high regard.
1: Yeah, and I and I do high, hold high regard, and I made a point of that in the book because um, early in my career I wasn't good at that. I like. I'm a very positive, optimistic person. I like to influence behavior and performance through positive reinforcement and role modeling, and that works a lot. But that doesn't work all the time, and you have to understand as a leader if you're going to choose to be in a leadership role. Um, and as my 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 dad and my wife say, or raise kids, you better be ready to give feedback because not only I think a lot of leaders say, well, it's part of my responsibility, and so. You know, I'll do it when I have to. No, no, it it is your it's your total responsibility, and you're doing a, a disservice to your your kids, your your direct reports, anyone who you um, are going to give feedback to. It's you, you it's a disservice by not giving it to them because you're not giving them an opportunity to fix or correct anything they have. You know, we all have blind spots. We all have things we're doing we don't know about, and if we don't have someone around us that can point those out to us and, and give us those tips and tricks to fix those in a, in a productive way. We'll just keep doing the same thing over and over and over again until one day we find a boss that gives us a feedback and we say, well, you know what? I've worked for 20 years. No one ever told me that. It's like, well, either you weren't listening or they decided not to tell you, but it's been, it's been hurting you for a while now. And here's the irony of that. I grew up playing sports. I think lots of people growing up playing sports or they've done activities. You know, I never, when I was playing uh, football in high school, And the coach yelled, Cockerel, I told you you put your right foot back when you're running left. You know, I didn't think to myself, why do you have something against me? Do you not like me as a person? You know, I would say, Okay, thanks, coach, because I'm gonna get off the mark quicker. I'm gonna, you know, perform better. I'm going to do better. The team's going to do better. I never even second guessed the fact that he was just making that up because he didn't like me. I just thought he was making my performance better. And which was the case. That's what coaches do. But somehow when we get to a professional environment, when someone gives us that feedback, we come up with all these other things and it gets really, there's a lot of drama and, and people are afraid to do that and give that. So um, I think it has to be something. Um, the biggest thing is you practice. It has to become part of your culture. And that's where, um, that's, everything's easy when it's part of your culture. I, 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 um, I define culture as the way things are done around here. And if people get feedback every day, they get recognition every day, you know, the, whatever happens every day is what they're going to be used to. And as long as it's done in a balanced way, that becomes part of the, the environment. But if it's not something that's done every day, it becomes a big moment when you get feedback because it's so infrequent, um, you know, cause people wait too long to give it or they decide not to give it, and it gets to a, a breaking point. So we just got to get comfortable with it. And we got to be get all this awkwardness out of the way and just let people know, look, my responsibility is to tell, give you feedback when I see something you can improve upon. You can choose to take it or not take it. That's the other thing I've learned over time. Um, I just get so caught up in, I'm going to tell them, but what if they don't change? Well, you know what, Dan? That's not your problem. I can't make you change your behavior. I can't make you make eye contact with people. I can't make you do anything that I want you to do in your job. All I can do is give you the feedback, tell you how it can be corrected. And if you choose not to correct it, then I have to give you feedback again. And the consequences will get more and more serious until either you change or you have to go some work someplace else. Um, and it's, uh, it's, it's, it's as simple as that. But like I said, I think a lot of people get caught up in, well, the person's not going to change anyway. So why give them feedback? Well, then you're not managing anything. <laughs> you're not leading anything. You're just riding along for the being there. So it's something certainly you have to practice. You're going to get it wrong. Sometimes you're going to overreact. Sometimes you're going to underreact, but unless you practice it just like learning another language, you're never going to get better at it. And that's probably the biggest thing is just get in there and start doing it.
2: Yeah. It's, it's so intriguing. Get yeah, a lot of you know, two core learning, uh pillars you know kind of that we sort of espouse both you know from a platform working with clients this idea of a discussion and feedback and practice and application and baking those into every purposeful and uh and you know with intentionality design of, of learning experiences and i'd love to get your take on you know do you think that you know you still have a, a, a tight pulse on the nature of of, of L and talent hr do you think that we're doing enough of that uh, candidly, especially in this sort of hybrid work environment to to make those part and parcel, those opportunities for practice and reflection in the learning? Or is it more just this sort of legacy? It's just consumption, just roam in a classroom or virtual instructor-led training and just hope they can get what they can out of it. I would love to hear your take on that.
1: Yeah, I would say we're absolutely not. Um, mm. And this is something I remember uh, I'd get uh, leaders say, you know, I really want to go to this class or I'd tell them, I'd really like you to go to this class. <laughs> but what I, what I concluded, having worked in so many different roles at Disney over the decades, was 90% of learning or more happens in, during life, in the operation, right in the moment where you're working. And it's nice. It's nice to go to a classroom and learn something new and disconnect, learn a new way to think about things and how you're going to put new uh, habits into place or new behaviors. There's definitely a place for that. But there's not nearly enough time to do that in the the work world because we, you know, unlike professionals which compete, who compete, I don't know, 2% of the time and train 98% of the time in business, we're competing 98% of the time, and we're training 2% of the time. So it has to become a part of the workplace, because that's where the behaviors are happening. That's where the time is. And uh, you have to bring that piece. Now, a lot of people say, well, look, I'm so busy and under my, over my head. I don't have time to do any of that. Well, you got to figure it out. Because like I said, if you're not doing that, then you're just maintaining. You're just trying to survive with everyone else. You got to find those moments. And once again, build it into the, the operation. Before a shift starts, if you're in an operation, say, look, we're going to take five minutes, three times a week. And we're going to talk about what everyone here is doing well and needs to improve upon. And just make that the moment and have that moment. Um, I used to, I challenged my team one time when I was in merchandise in magic kingdom, cause we were really focusing on, gosh, we're so big here. Do we really know our employees? And we know that when you know your employees on a personal level, everything gets easier when you have a relationship, it's easier to give feedback. It's easier to recognize them. They trust you more. I mean, so many things go with that. And I told the leaders, I said, do you think you all could meet each meet with three employees a week for half an hour? And just sit down and get to know them. Just sit down a coffee and buy them a cup of coffee. And they said, Dan, we are so busy here. Um, you know, that's that's you know, there's a lot going on. I don't know. I said, How about two? And we tried that and they, they said it was too hard. I said, All right, we're gonna do we're gonna go to one and I'd go less, but there's no less than one. <laughs> so can everyone here commit to sit down with an employee for 30 minutes once a week? One employee for 30 minutes once a week and they said yeah i guess we could do that we can i said all right well you have i don't know you have 100 employees in your location so that means between all the leaders here you're going to end up sitting down with an employee for 30 minutes every 2 months i said that seems pretty that seems pretty good if you want to have a one on one conversation with someone give them some performance feedback and have that you know personal connection so summing up what you said it can't just be classroom we have to teach leaders how to coach how to give that feedback on the fly we also need to give them opportunities to reflect um, we're not good at reflecting. We we go, we just execute the plan all day long, and we seldomly get a chance to think about how we're doing the work we're doing. And when you slow down sometimes, you realize, boy, if I really took a step back, I'd realize I've been wasting three hours a month doing this thing that I wasn't even supposed to be doing anymore, or it's been automated or something. So, on the reflection point, once again, intention, schedule time. Um, I used to block an afternoon once a month. And it was just Dan's meeting. So no one could take the time. It was my time. And when that Wednesday or Thursday rolled around, I'm like, it was like a vacation day. I got a whole half day here just to think. And uh, you know, I wanted to go respond to emails, catch up on all my administrative work, but I had to stay disciplined, just saying, How am I doing in my life right now? How am I doing with my family? How am I doing with my wife, my kids? How am I getting my job done? Where could I make changes? Um, And when you have, when you put that reflection time aside, it is a powerful thing. But once again, it's so hard to get out of that hamster wheel and take a step back, but you gotta, and it's just, it's just holding the time. Don't, don't expect it to happen randomly because it never will. You're, you're always going to be putting out that next fire.
0: Speaking of putting out next fires, um, there's a great section in the book called plan for the unpredictable. And you share some epic examples of unpredictable events that played out at disney my unquestionable favorite of which is two dopies showed up with the other five dwarves and we still can't find duck that made me laugh <laughs> out loud you're right that great leaders are able to improvise and react spontaneously to whatever issue comes up we're playing in what we at Novawood call the never normal right now you wrote this book pre-pandemic any lessons learned from unpredictable ops at Disney that could help people continue to manage unpredictability in these crazy times?
1: Yeah. So, once again, this is you know we keep talking about intentionality. Uh, take a take a day. Maybe it's twice a year. You can pick the frequency depending on how complex your 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 operation your company is. But you can have fun with this take your team aside for an afternoon and say, today is what if day. So let's talk about the keys to our business. What are the keys to us delivering our, our services? And what are all the things that could go wrong that would get in the way of us being able to deliver that? And then you just go to town and you start brainstorming and you people can come up with earthquakes all kinds of weather things they can come up with all kinds of technology issues they can come up with the next pandemic they can come up with you know i don't know aliens attacking you know come up with whatever you want but what is it going to take for you to stay up and running and have that uh, resilience and um and then once you make that list you can cross out a bunch of stuff because you can't absolutely plan for everything but you can cross out a bunch of stuff that probably is not going to happen. And usually most crises come down to a few things and then just talk about how would we do that? If we, if we lost all communication tomorrow, how would we talk to each other? How would we communicate? Um, cause we had those moments in the park where, you know, some of the systems went down, the internet went down and everyone, we all had agreed. We all have an app, an external app we could get on and use because it didn't go through the Disney servers. And so we were still able to keep in touch with each other. So it's, um, it's, it's that brainstorming piece, um, about how to do that. You don't have to go the next step logistically and tactically how to take care of it. But if you've thought about it already, you're going to be way ahead of the game. Um, and we used to do this, uh, um, every month we would do a, an exercise of the park. You know, there's a, 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 B, and C evacuation An a evacuation is we have to close the park early and have everyone leave very quickly, like nine 11. Uh, you know, we, we, we an announcement and we closed the park at noon and an hour later, everyone was out of the park done in a very orderly way. Then you have a B evacuation? What if the main entrance is blocked? People can't go out normal exits. Okay. We had passed behind through the park to get out, but in a different way, we practice that. And then you have C evacuation, which is safe Haven. What if there's a tornado coming? There's a really bad hailstorm. There's an active shooter in the park. Where can we give everyone safe haven? And we would do tabletop exercises and we would talk about it. How are you going to think about it? Who's going to get the call? How do you mobilize everybody? And we would have the conversation. You're already in an unmanageable situation, but at least you have sort of a plan. So once again, that brainstorming goes a long way. I think I put this in the book too, when we put um, at Hall of Presidents, you know, we, um, when we had uh, uh, President Trump was being put in Hall of Presidents and we knew that that was going to be a, a possible place for things to happen if people wanted to get attention because you know politically it was so such a hot topic. And so we worked with the security team. We brainstormed what are all the things someone might do? What are all the things we can do to prevent that from happening? And what are all the things we're going to have to do to react to that if it does happen? And that it's not a one day, it's not an afternoon exercise. It, it's ongoing. But um, absolutely. And we saw that during the pandemic, companies that were had already moved to Zoom you know, that they were able to keep doing business because their communication uh, was in place. So um, it just takes a a little creativity and it's something you need to just revisit pretty frequently.
0: We're, we're highly focused on collaboration and best collaborative practices at Novo at I was going to ask you if you could talk a little bit about interdepartmental, maybe cross park, cross functional collaboration at Disney and how you create such a seamless connected experience in the minds of your customers.
1: Yeah, I think a lot of that comes back, uh, you know, you all know the term culture eat strategy for breakfast. And if you tried to figure out how to collaborate on just on a strategic level at Disney, it would never happen because no one could figure out all the connections that need to be made. Um, And no one could come up with all the scenarios that you need to be partnering and collaborating with others. So what you have to do is make it a cultural issue and tell stories around it and keep reinforcing it. And so there's a great story that's told in uh, traditions, which is the orientation class you go through. Every employee goes through his traditions on the first day of their job, where regardless of a frontline employee, a manager, an executive, they go through traditions. And traditions is saying, why did Walt Disney create theme parks? What do we do every day? What's our purpose? And how do we work as a team? And we tell, we tell tons of stories around partnerships and collaboration and give everyone examples of that. So You know, if I work in uh, attractions and you work in outdoor food and you're selling ice cream and I walk up to you and I got my big Thunder Mountain costume on, I say, hey, can you give me an ice cream? I have a guest over here who just dropped one and I'm going to replace it for Um, what would happen. A lot of organizations is who are you? Uh, Your manager has to call my manager to give me permission because my till has to be balanced and the list goes on as opposed to, you know what, you give that ice cream to that person. And you write it in your loss, so you, write, you put a note on it, so you're still going to balance your inventory, and you go. Now, if that happens, you should always say yes, because the risk is low. Why would you say no? Um, now, if that person comes to you at 3 o'clock every single day, maybe you should start asking some questions. But use your common sense. And a lot of times when we're, we try to have people sort of go outside their, their responsibilities, um, somehow we make the exception the rule. We try to put rules in place to guard against the very small group of people who are going to abuse whatever we're trying to put in place. We punish everybody else. So this idea, um, you have to role model it and you have to tell stories about it over and over and over again. Uh, another story they, they share in traditions was uh, it's a famous story called Greenside Up. You know, the day before they opened Walt Disney World in 1971, they hadn't laid the sod yet outside the park. So the park was ready. The hotels were ready, but it was just brown. It was terrible. And they put a call out to everyone at Walt Disney World, operations, accounting, finance, marketing, and everyone showed up at the contemporary, So what, what do we need to do? They said, we need to put this sod down. So we open tomorrow. This place looks you know, looks good. And someone from finance, the story goes, says, I've never laid sod. Person, The horticulture said, oh, I'll give you a tip. It's green side up. <laughs> and that was it. And so today, when we talk about that, we tell people, hey, green side up. Um, You know, the Space Mountain just went down. It's down for two hours. There's mobs of crowd over there in line. I need everyone from retail and merchandise and guest relations to get over there to help them manage the crowds. And everyone goes without asking. And we celebrate that afterwards. We make a big deal out of it. And when you reward the behaviors that you encourage, people want to do that more. And so you got to, you have to reward this collaboration and partnering and find various ways to do that. But once again, you have to make it a habit and a, a behavior that's uh, valued by the organization.
2: Dan, it makes me think, you know, you're, arguably you're making this case that, you know, as a form of development, you talk about about this in the book is being vital to business investment because it reduces turnover, training costs, drives productivity, creates sort of endearment, allows you to execute the business more effectively, you know, sort of more operationally efficiently, or operationally um, in, in a more efficient manner. I know that sort of if we take you for a second into the leadership program specifically, I know known worldwide Disney for the caliber, the quality, um, just the sort of the, the exemplar of development leadership development programs. Can you talk a little bit about what is it that makes, you know, makes these programs so unique, maybe beyond the idea of the reinforcement of culture and the, the criticality of storytelling and, and, and surfacing success stories. What, what other parts really sort of make those, those programs sing?
1: Yeah, I think there's a few other things. I think one is uh, clarity, very mm-hmm. clear expectations. Uh, so um, a couple things that um, we speak about often is uh, the common purpose If you go ask anyone at Disney um, what their job is, you know, they'll tell them I'm a custodian, I'm a housekeeper, I'm a dancer in the parade, I'm an accountant. Well, what's your purpose? What are you all trying to do here? What's the goal every day everyone's thinking about? We're here to make magical memories for guests, create magical experiences for guests. And so that common purpose, if you talk about that enough over and over again, everyone starts to think about that more than their job. And so that their job responsibility almost, it becomes secondary to what the purpose is. I'm here to make sure that you have an only Disney experience and you challenge everyone. Everyone gets to participate. So um, let me use an example. When we, uh, we started to challenge our housekeepers at resorts and said, you are here to create magical memories for guests. You know, the first thing they said was, well, here's a problem. We don't see the guests. By the time we get to work, they're gone in the parks for the day. And by the time they get back to their hotel room, we've long left. All we did was clean the room and make the bed. So we don't even get to see them. What do you mean create magical memories? And then someone said, well, I have an idea. And they created the first towel animal, you know, and they, they folded it. And then someone else would say, well, I can do that too. Cause I know origami and they made towel animals. And then someone said, well, you know what, I'm going to take the washcloth and I'm going to lay out everyone's toothbrush in nice order and put their deodorant and everything on the counter. So they really are to see that. And someone else said, well, I'm going to get all the plush and put them on the bed and, and put a remote control in one of their paws and turn the TV on. So when the family gets back at night that, you know, just like at a toy story, all the All the plush were watching TV and they froze when we came in the room, but we caught them. So once again, they get creative around it. So you tell them, what's your job? Well, my job is to clean the room and it, but my purpose is to make sure guests have an only Disney experience. And so I think if you can constantly talk about the common purpose, and I know people say, well, that's Disney. It doesn't count in my place because you know what? Um, I run a pizza joint and I don't have Space Mountain and I don't have Mickey um, pizzas. So what do I do? I say, well, you come up with what your thing is. What's the differentiator? If you have great pizza, that's the price of entry. If you have bad pizza, no magic is going to help you. You better have good pizza. But once you have good pizza, what's going to be the difference now? Why do people come get pizza at your place versus others? The taste may be there, but a lot of people have really good pizza. What's going to thing going to be? And it may be the kids saying, every time we go to that pizza place, we get a little free cookie like they do at you know, some of the supermarkets, where every time we go there um, we get to go play in that, that side area that has the free video games or every one time we go in there, they all yell, you know, welcome to our, and they'd make a big deal. And the kids love that. So what is your differentiator? How are you going to differentiate that experience and your common purpose? And so I think that's something, once again, we talk about constantly. The other one is um, the quality standards. So in a place like Disney that has set over 70,000 employees, you can't tell everyone to use common sense to do make decisions because everyone's coming from different backgrounds and different places. You have to give criteria on how to make decisions. Some companies try to build a standard operating guideline. That's an encyclopedia and tell their employees to memorize it. Once again, you cannot look ahead and see every circumstance that's going to come up. So instead of doing that, you have to give a way to figure things out a a decoder ring, I'll call it. So Disney, we give them four standards, uh, safety, courtesy, show and efficiency. Any decision you make, the first thing you have to think about is safety. That's a non-negotiable. You cannot ever break safety. If you're 47 and a half inches tall, I cannot let you on the on this ride if it's 48 inches. I don't care what you do. I don't care if you promise me you're going to keep your arms in the, the vehicle. It's weird. it's designed for that. I can't let you in. But what I can do, I can have you meet one of the characters. I can let you ride another attraction. There's a host of things I can do, but I can never put you in an unsafe situation. Next is courtesy. I'm always going to be nice. When given the choice, always help people out, be proactive, anticipate what they need, show, make sure that you're, you have your name tag on and you're, you're playing the part and the role you're in in the park. And lastly is efficiency. We got to move a lot of people quickly, Um, but we're never going to put efficiency ahead of anything else. So I'm not going to make you get in that vehicle too quickly because I have to hit my targets and put your safety at risk. I'm not going to tell you to move along faster and be uncourteous or discourteous because I want to be more efficient. Um, and I'm not going to ruin the show either. So if you can come up with what your criteria is and use those criteria to make all the decisions you make, uh, everyone starts to make very similar decisions without even talking to each other. And that's a really powerful thing.
0: You write in the book, diversity is being invited to the party. Inclusiveness is being asked to dance. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about what you mean by that and maybe how it is that you were able to work with people across different departments from imagineering to merchandising to be able to bring some of what it is that you wanted to create to life?
1: Yeah, it, it's funny you bring that up because uh, Valor and I have a, a workshop next week in Dallas, and we got on this topic of diversity. And it's, it's, such a, it's always been an important topic and such a big topic now. And we, we have a little different take on it. So, um, and this was a little conversation we had. So I'm working on that piece on diversity. I'm trying to figure out how to approach it from a leadership perspective. And we've talked about it before. And what we, what we're, what we concluded was, you know what? You got to teach people how to be open-minded and teach people how to let go of their assumptions and teach people to listen and ask uh, probing questions and be willing to th- know that and admit maybe there's a better way to do this, and maybe I'm not an expert on this. And there's a lot of ways to come at this. A lot of this is ego, uh, and a lot of this is um, once again just not being able to be vulnerable and let everyone speak. Um, some of it's cultural, you know. There's a there's a um, usually in, in in staff meetings often you'll have um, either the extroverts taking up all the oxygen in the room in some cultures it's the men cause there's no women in the room. And if there's a woman in the room, they're not being listened to. So we all make these, um, we have this unconscious bias and that's just part of how we're wired. And I, I know people don't like that. They're like, well, I'm not that way. Yeah, you are. Cause it's, 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 a safety. It's a safety and survival technique to make quick decisions on people because that's how we avert danger. And we have to make some, we have to put them in a bucket. But once we get over that first initial, um, evolutionary reaction. Then we go back to our critical thinking and really um, be ready for our second engagement with somebody. And so um, that that has to be reinforced constantly. And I think leaders have to role model it. Leaders have to give everyone a voice. Leaders have to find processes to make sure they're listening to everybody. Sometimes that's as simple as asking them their opinion. Sometimes that's asking the person who always speaks up first to say before you speak I know you have an answer let's listen to everybody else. And sometimes it's you know like I used to do give everyone your phone number. Say if you need if you have a point of view and you need to talk to me about something, you do your leader's not listening and you really think you need to talk to someone, call me because I'm the vice president's park and I have the authority to listen and 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 do this and and make a decision and help you. Now just because you have access doesn't mean you're right but I'd rather have you call me than channel nine news or Twitter or Facebook or wherever else you want to tell the story. I'd rather have a first shot at fixing it. Um, so there is that idea that you have to just at a base level, train yourself to respect everybody and listen to everybody because the conversation Valor and I had, I said, you know what this, the diverse inclusion conversation, I don't want to go into a room and have, and this is extreme, but try to, um, convince everyone not to be racist. (laughs) You know, if you're racist, my training is not going to help you. And I know racist is a very extreme term. But if you're biased against certain people consciously, my training is not going to help you. That's a value. And I'm not changing your values. So I just got to change the way you think about things and give you tools to overcome maybe those biases you have, and maybe those assumptions you make. Um, Because every organization, to your point, I'm going to invite you to the party, because HR told me I had to, and I have to hit a quota. And you know, you can do that. But am I going to ask you to dance? It's like now that's really where we get the best thoughts. We get people that don't talk like us. They have a weird accent. They've come from other places. They have different experiences. And that's where innovation happens. But you have to recognize that um, you, don't know, you don't know best. That's the, that's the shadow side of culture. You have to say the culture is key to what we do, but individual opinions is how we're going to excel and kind of move forward. And those are often considered at different ends of the spectrum.
2: You know, I wonder, Dan. Maybe the the, the B, uh, you know, sort of in the nomenclature of the belonging starts to come about with when that's done consistently over time, on um, sort of repetitive manner at scale, and, and now all of a sudden it's like, yes, I was invited, yes, I was asked to dance, and and, and wow, this is happening consistently for me over time, uh, you know, and, and at scale. So, yeah. Yeah. intriguing, intriguing point on that side. So I, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask one super Disney-related question: can, can, Were you at at the um, basis of the Magic Bands, and who 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 gets to take credit for that? Inside, which is I think perhaps one of the most brilliant sort of design. I know it's out for quite some time now, but just the yeah. idea of the sort of ride ahead and you know go go book your space was just brilliant from a sheer logistics standpoint. And also back to the the guest experience side is the the mass reduction and frustration it must have brought about. I, I don't know if you can share have insight to
1: that one yeah there's uh some of this may be uh lore and uh but, but i'll tell you the story i know um you go back to i don't know the early maybe early 2000s 2014 2015 um and no it was before that let me see let me get my dates right like 2008 so um uh jay rizzullo is the chairman of parks and resorts and someone brings it to his attention and said, hey, um, the cover of Oprah magazine uh, has the 12, the, the, the most uh, terrifying places to go on vacation and Disney's on the list. And he got his attention. When you start reading it, you know, people are saying, gosh, you go there, it's hot, it's long, you can't plan. Um, you know, Everything's difficult logistics. And it's just it's, it's really hard to, to get, make your way around. Why would anyone go do that? And so he saw boy, we better get ahead of this because we're doing well right now, but we, we, gotta, we, gotta, we have to start changing. We have to start to, to look at what's going on in the world where people are not, they're not as patient as they used to be and they want everything right away. The, the, the second thing that came about is Bob Iger, if you've read his book, Ride of a Lifetime, his, his wife, when he became the CEO, Willow Bay told him, his wife said, hey, look, the average CEO lasts like four years. So you better start to make some big decisions because you're going to get fired anyway. So he went and bought Pixar, which you know he could have gotten fired for if that didn't work out. He bought Lucasfilms, which he could have gotten fired for. He opened Shanghai Disney and decided to get that park open, which he could have gotten fired for. Marvel. So you just keep it just keeps going. He just kept making these big bets. But the thing is, what I've realized about companies that are really forward-thinking, you make the bets when you're in the middle of your heyday. Because when you're making money and people are coming – you can make a bunch of bets and lose those bets because you know what, you, you can afford to lose it. It gets lost in all the volume. It's and usually companies start making these big innovative bets on the way down. Boy, we're losing market share. Our clients aren't coming back. We got to, we got to go quickly and find out a new technology to put in place. They rush it. They don't think through it. It goes wrong. And then that, that just keeps accelerating the downward spiral spiral. So Anyway, Jay Rizzullo went and talked to Bob Iger. He said, yeah, let's, let's look at this. And they, they took a bunch, four or five top executives and put them together as a team for like a year and said, we want a big idea. Well, what do you want? We just want a big idea of how we're going to change the way we operate at Walt Disney World that's going to make the experience better. They went back, I think twice with plans and the feedback they got was, this isn't big enough. Go back, it has to be bigger. I mean, how often do you hear that? So they went back. And uh, finally, the final time they came back and said, okay, what we realized is, first of all, we are being pushed, not by other theme parks, we're being pushed by every industry that's making things easier. Every company that's created an app, every company that's finding a faster way to do things with technology is now being pushed on us. People are saying, why can't Disney have an app? Why can't you make, why can't we book out in advance? So you're not competing with other vacation destinations. You're competing with Google and Domino's Pizza and Uber and everyone else. And so, um, and they, they went after it. And at at the end of the day, they said, okay, we're going to do this transformation. We are going to get rid of the friction points so that we can tie this together. We're going to create a a, a guiding principle called forward momentum in our designs. So people keep moving forward, you know, moving forward is a big part of uh, having a great experience is you're making progress. And, um, and so that was a design criteria they used. And, uh, the famous, um, the famous uh, three guiding principles we had when we worked on the project, the billion-dollar project, was at a base level: the guests better love it, the employees better love it, and it better freaking work. <laughs> so those are the <laughs> big three, and those seem like very simple things. But boy, we brought those up often when you know IT said, "Hey, uh, the guest is going to have to enter a, a 16-digit number into their phone to associate their Magic Band with their account." We're like, they're not going to love that. Come up with a new plan well, the new plan is going to cost a million dollars. Fine. <laughs> Take it out of the billion and make that come to life. So once again, even when you have that much money, you can start making shortcuts and, and not deliver on the promise because you, you're not thinking about the bigger picture. So that was kind of how it came to life. And it ke- it continues to evolve and it's never, it's always going to be evolving because there's always going to be new technology. There's going to be new approaches to this.
0: Brilliant. Dan. Thank you for that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Dan, uh, Park's about to close down, nighttime, spectacular time, fireworks, and we've got our last question. Uh, You shared in the book, and you shared also today, that everyone could be your mentor in some way. You can learn a lot from anybody, but we'd love to end by asking you to call out perhaps a few of the most influential coaches or mentors in your life that believed in you uh, and your approach to your career, and that have shepherded you on through your career through to now.
1: Yeah, so uh, I had, um, you know, sometimes we have this thing called imposter syndrome. Should I be here? Do I have more runway ahead of me? You know, can I can I really move? Keep moving on? Um, I had a couple leaders along the way who told me, "Hey Dan, I know you're ambitious, but you have a lot of potential in front of you. Just take it one day at a time. Do a good job what you're doing today." I had a few people give me that advice. Um, my dad was one of them. You know, just do your job do be good at your job, good things will happen. And that happened over time. Um, I had others who, um, um, you know, pushed me pretty, pretty hard, uh, and were down into the weeds and the details. And it's a fun thing about having um, 19 different jobs in an organization, you have 19 different bosses, and boy, you learn a lot, and there are none of them are the same. And uh, one of my leaders, uh, Kevin Myers, actually, it was his name, he was the vice president of uh, resorts, at Walt Disney World when I was a general manager there at the all-star resort. And he, I mean, when you talk to him about a situation, he wanted every last piece of information. And I used to think to myself, this guy is such a micromanager, you know, what's up with it. And he addressed it with the group. He said, I know a lot of you think I micromanage and um, I get too much in the details. He said, I just have to let you know, that's how I sleep at night. I just need a lot of information and that's how I operate. I can't change that. And so I need you all to get better at just providing that to me. So I got really good at that. I got really good at giving detail and understanding. And When I was talking with my team, I would ask three or four more questions after I usually would have been done asking questions and I'd get another gold nugget when I talked to him. Sometimes that little detail, that little fact that we would have overlooked in other places became a pretty big deal. It was a pretty big, pretty big piece. Um, And we moved so quickly today we don't spend time to think through things all the way. And sometimes we miss those really obvious things that are right in the middle of our, our face. Um, so he, he mentored me along the way, but I can't, I'd be hard pressed to ever had a bad boss at Disney, which is pretty unbelievable. Um, uh, Disney Paris, I only had one who (laughs) after an incident, asked if I boxed. So I think I was being threatened, but I'm not sure. And we're still friends, you know, he, but he was, it was a little innuendo that was in the early nineties when you could get away with that. But, uh, that was fine. Um, but I learned a ton, you know, you have people come from all, all walks of life who are working at Disney and they're all passionate to be there and everyone's committed. If you're not, if you're not on the train to Disney, you don't last very long. Cause it's, uh, you can't fake it. You gotta, you gotta want to be there. And, uh, the support And we got to run that place it was pretty exceptional. So it really set me up for, I think, success as I move forward.
0: You say that you tell that story in the book about the operations manager that you hired at Epcot, who came in and told everybody yeah. pointed at the, the poster of the Lion King. He says, you see this, um, I'm on top of the food chain, much like Simba on top of Pride Rock. <laughs> <laughs> like i read that like oh man that guy ain't gonna last very long inevitably he didn't uh let go in short order but i think that speaks to the the culture that you have, uh, they yeah, have. i don't
1: think he was a good cultural fit <laughs>
0: exactly exactly dan this was the best thank you as always um thank you for the time thank you for the insight and for sharing all this knowledge uh so thrilled to have the opportunity to Get to interview you and just love the book. And everybody should check out "How's the Culture in Your Kingdom" by Dan Cockrell. Um, looking forward to continuing the conversation. Another point, real soon.
1: Great, Alex Todd. Thanks for the time. I, I had a good time here. That's great. Thank you.
0: NovoEd empowers organizations to build deep capabilities rather than mere skills through cohort-based learning that drives true readiness to perform on the job. For more episodes of the Wildly Capable podcast or for more information on NovoEd, please visit us at NovoEd.com.